Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy, international affairs, global development community, and world news aficionados of all stripes. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and now on with the show. When economies started tanking last year as COVID-19 spread rapidly around the globe, the World Bank and International Monetary Fund mounted their crisis response. Both institutions stepped up their lending to lower-income countries and emerging economies alike in an effort to mitigate the economic fallout from the pandemic. Now, one year later, we can assess some of the impact of the responses by these institutions and assess what comes next as countries continue to try to weather this economic storm. On the line with me to discuss how the World Bank and IMF have responded to COVID-19 is Scott Morris, Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development. We spoke just before the annual spring meetings of the World Bank and International Monetary Fund, which I think provides a useful inflection point to discuss both the actions that these institutions have taken over the last year and what new initiatives might be on the horizon, particularly as the new Biden administration settles in. I think you'll find this conversation useful. It's not necessarily pegged to the annual spring meetings, and we do spend more time discussing the World Bank than we do the International Monetary Fund. But towards the end of the conversation, we do have what I think is a pretty interesting discussion about how and why key figures like Janet Yellen, the new U.S. Treasury Secretary, are seeking to reimagine the role of the IMF and World Bank to tackle future global challenges. And just one quick thing before we start, if you are a regular listener to the show, I would so appreciate it if you could leave a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen to the show. Writing a review is actually a selfless act because it helps other people who are similarly interested find the podcast. So thank you in advance. I so appreciate it. Now here is my conversation with Scott Morris of the Center for Global Development. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, a year ago we were facing tremendous uncertainty and frankly, a huge amount of fear. Um, if we think about, you know, looking out at the global landscape, um, the pandemic itself, um, but also the economic effects of the pandemic, particularly in developing countries, many of which, uh, you know, among the poorest countries, even coming into this crisis, uh, were in a bit of trouble, whether, you know, by in terms of debt loads, 
um, or overall economic performance. So, you know, with this crisis hitting, you know, in the very earliest days, there were just deep, deep fears about the impact this was going to have, uh, particularly in the developing world, even as, you know, those of us in wealthy countries, you know, had fears about what we were facing at home. So there clearly was a mandate um, and a focus on the World Bank to step up and act. So what we saw was, uh, I think, uh, late February, March of last year, the bank uh, announced its basically its package of crisis commitments of on the order of about $160 billion. Um, and that was a commitment on behalf of the entire institution, meaning you know, the lending that it does to governments um, in different kinds of developing countries, the poorest and all the way up to emerging markets, but also through the IFC, the International Finance Corporation, which is its private sector investment arm. So that was sort of, that was the starting point uh, for the bank's response to the crisis. So there was this suite of $160 billion of investments that the World Bank said it was going to spend. Uh, did it actually disperse that amount? Well, um, you, you pointed to an important distinction when we say, when we use the word disperse versus commit, this in fact um, deserves some scrutiny. And, and in fact, with colleagues at, at the Center for Global Development, we we took some time to look at this. So on the one hand, the bank clearly has moved forward uh, in a way that it, it has been able to scale up its commitments to countries. And commitments are really um, the, the start of the process of, of the funding relationship. So whether it is a project commitment, a commitment to build a new road uh, to fund a health clinic, or a commitment simply to support the budget of the developing country, uh, that's the starting point for the bank. Now, the question of disbursement, meaning actual money flowing from the bank to the developing country government, is, is different in the sense that, you know, in normal times outside of a crisis, uh, disbursements can vary a lot uh, because projects vary a lot. It can take, you know, it can take five years more uh, to do a big infrastructure project. So, you know, the bank might announce a commitment of a billion dollars to a country but the disbursements might take, frankly, years um, to proceed. Now, you know, there's a crisis imperative in, in, you know, the context of the past year, which is why we wanted to look at this question that, you know, there's, that's all well and good for normal times. But, you know, if we are expecting to developing countries to scale up their fiscal response to this crisis, as we in the U.S. certainly have, have done very aggressively and continue to do, um, they need actual money coming from, particularly from institutions like the World Bank, because um, many of them either don't have any market access, they, they can't simply go and issue uh, bonds uh, in external credit markets the way uh, the U.S. can. So they really are particularly reliant on the World Bank. And again, you know, it really matters, you know, not just the commitment that the bank makes, but the, the money out the door you can't you can't spend a commitment. You can you can spend it a disbursement. So you know we were interested in looking closely at that, tracking both the commitments and the disbursements. And there's a then there's a third element to the equation when it comes to the World Bank's relationship with these countries is how much are the countries themselves paying back to the bank in real time? Because that's sort of the other side of the ledger. And in, and again in a crisis period that represents a drag. Mm -hmm. on their ability to mount a, a, a fiscal response mm -hmm. in, in their own economy. 
And at any, you know, if we just take a snapshot at any point in time, it could be that they actually, a country is actually repaying more to the World Bank than they are receiving in new disbursements. So that's a, you know, we would call it a net negative flow. Um, And, you know, again, outside of a crisis period, that's not necessarily something to be terribly worried about. It's just sort of a mismatch in the timing of projects. But again, you know, there's just this overriding imperative about crisis response. So it would matter a lot if we're looking at countries and seeing that, you know, over the course of 2020, um, perhaps on a net basis, they're paying back to the World Bank as much as they're receiving in new money. And that's a situation where, you know, frankly, it's hard to see how the World Bank is doing them much good in fighting this crisis. So I think that sets up your research nicely into what actually the World Bank has dispersed from this $160 billion commitment. Where has that money gone? Yeah, so, you know, I think the bottom line is the picture is mixed, and it's certainly not uh, wholly negative. Um, You know, number one, when it comes to both commitments and disbursements, the bank has clearly mounted a crisis response. So it's not just business as usual. We do see an uptick in the numbers overall, Um, but it does vary uh, across countries and and even uh, regions and types of countries. So, you know, number one, um, the disbursement rate uh, has been um, most aggressive, most positive in Africa. which also includes some of the bank's poorest uh, client countries. Um, So that's clearly, um, that's a positive. Um, And those numbers actually can, you know, look really very significant, even as a share of these countries' economies. Like it's it's very clear that um, the World Bank's crisis financing is, is helping to mount, you know, a significant response in those countries. Um, and, you know, it, as we look at our list, that includes um, Sierra Leone, Niger, Rwanda, um, among those who uh, on a net basis are seeing, you know, very significant positive flows from the bank. Um, but then, you know, there, what's striking is that there's actually quite a large list of countries, you know, roughly a third, a bit more where these net flows, frankly, just are not on, you know, not, they're just barely in the positive. So, you know, that you, you are seeing repay, repayment uh, streams that are significant, but more importantly, um, the new disbursements are not all that significant. So um, while there really aren't, you know, there are virtually no countries that are, you know, on a net negative basis that they're having to pay back more than they're receiving. But there are a troubling number of countries where there just isn't um, a large and significant uptick in in what they're receiving from the bank relative to to their repayments. Then the other, and then, you know, the other, I think, lens we can look at this through, you know, I mentioned the poorest countries but you know the bank as a whole serves a wide range of developing countries and as i mentioned earlier that includes emerging market countries and what's very clear is that when we look at the arm of the world bank that is lending to these countries we call it the ibrd um it clearly has not mounted anything like the crisis response that the the other arm of the bank serving the poorest countries called ida has mounted um so that seems to reflect um 
some kind of decision making and prioritization within the institution. Yeah. But basically, at some point, the institution decided that it would target most of its support to lower income countries, not necessarily emerging markets. I think yeah, I think that's the simple version of it. It's it's there's you know I think there is more complexity to it. Number one, these are two distinct uh, arms of the institution. Um, even legally speaking, they have uh, they have their own uh, balance sheets. Um, so it's not really that there's a direct financial trade off between the two arms. Um, but there are other ways that you know we can see prioritization, and and in fact. You know the the IDA that does support for the poorest countries is is currently uh, in the midst of some very aggressive fundraising from donors uh, in order to support um, continued scaled up efforts. Whereas you know on the IBRD side, it was striking. I was you know listening to some comments from David Malpass this week, and he's the head he of the World said, Bank, a president of the World Bank, mm-hmm. and you know he basically said, well. You know, on the for the IBRD, people talk about the need for more capital, but I don't, I don't see it right now. I, I think we're doing just fine, and you know, I think one reason they're doing just fine uh, in in terms of the health of their finances is, frankly, you know, they they didn't do any you know huge scale up in lending, um, and you know, importantly, compared to what, and we can compare it to a decade ago in the midst of the global financial crisis where. Uh, you did see a very rapid and large um, scale up in in IBRD lending to to the middle income countries. So you sketched out this kind of scenario in which the World Bank is doing a, a lot of lending right now. Um, and in some cases, uh, the amount that it's lending is not much greater than the amount it's owed by certain countries, which I think raises this kind of long-term question of what about the debt that a lot of these countries are incurring right now in order to fund their COVID responses? And is there a concern, um, particularly among the global development community, that this indebtedness might hamper a country's economic development going forward. Yeah, that's right. It's important. Uh, you know, I think all of the discussions around debt sustainability for these countries are directly linked to what we've been talking about, namely new lending from the World Bank, repayment of old World Bank loans. And interestingly, you know, one one element of this of the debt relief discussions is is the fact that the World Bank and the other multilateral development banks uh, are not participating in in the G20's um, debt service suspension program. And you know, what is that program? I am not so aware. This was you know this was agreed also last spring as a measure that the G20 governments would take um, to help support uh, the poorest countries. And 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 namely, what what they agreed to do was to suspend any repayments on loans these countries were making back to the G20 governments. Okay, so like bilateral um, loans. Bilateral loans is, okay. is how it's shaped up. Now that said, um, you know, part of the announcement at the time was also that there should be efforts uh, to include all classes of creditors, um, you know, namely commercial creditors. Um, mm. that, that never materialized. But again, you know, with our focus on the World Bank here, it's interesting to note, you know, it was very clear early on that the multilateral institutions, you know, were drawing a, a hard line and saying, 
we will not participate in this. And it's worth, you know, it's worth taking a minute to understand why, why they would take that position, which, you know, at best feels a bit awkward. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, their, their argument basically is, you know, we are not commercial creditors. We're not in this, you know, we're not in this business um, to reap profits, you know, to the degree that, you know, we, we lend and we do for the most part lend, we're not giving away money. Um, and we charge some amount of interest. All of those earnings are going back into new support for developing countries. So if you ask us to stop the repayment flow, that is only going to mm. uh, have a negative effect on our ability to do new financing, even in this crisis period. And they specifically, they they worried a lot about what the credit rating agencies would have to say about you know, basically their, you know, their, their, their ratings as a result of participating in this. So they, you know, I think um, the G20 governments more or less accepted this, although, you know, strikingly, the Chinese government in particular has been consistently critical and has called on all the MDBs to participate. Um, but, you know, the, the, the outcome is that, is that they do not. Um, so while, if you're the Chinese government, um, for the most part, if you're the U.S. government, the Europeans, you have suspended those payments. The World Bank has not. Um, uh, so that is, you know, that's a that's one important element of this uh, of of the debt relief conversation. Um, but then, you know, the other, and I think, you know, in favor of the World Bank's position, um, like I said, they are very worried about anything that would disrupt their ability to offer new financing. Um, and you know what's important about that is not just the volume of money that's flowing, uh, which we are measuring in our research, it's also the terms. Um, you know, as I said, the World Bank is not a commercial lender. And, and one way that's meaningful is that um, for virtually all of its client countries, it, re it, it represents a really good deal. Um, so certainly for the poorest countries, Many of them actually aren't receiving loans from the bank. They receive pure grants. Um, but you know, most, most of those low-income countries are receiving loans, but on very generous terms, you know, zero interest rate financing, very long grace periods. Even for those emerging market countries, um, you know, the, the terms that they're getting from the IBRD are, are you know, have a, a significant degree of what we would call concessionality, basically the interest rates are significantly lower than market interest rates. Um, there are grace periods. So um, yeah, like the is, idea is the world bank is not trying to make money off of its, uh, its lending to a certain degree. Um, yeah. And from, yeah. from the developing countries perspective, um, that kind of money is exactly what they need, even mm -hmm. from a debt sustainability standpoint, because one of the features of the debt risk that these countries are facing today is it's not so much, you know, this big stock of debt, although that that clearly is there. It's actually the repayment terms that are driving debt stresses today, because a lot of these countries, including some of the poorest, are borrowing much more from 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 commercial sources today, which carry higher interest rates. So they're having trouble meeting those payment terms. So have you been able to put a approximate number on actual disbursements from that one hundred and sixty billion dollar commitment? So we, if, if we eyeball it as of the beginning of this year, 
Um, and I should let me let me set aside it. What we did not do in our work was look at the IFC. So if you if you uh, subtract the IFC's um, commitments, we the goal was actually more along the lines of about 104 billion dollars is what <laughs> the World Bank was committing. They as a and just to um, just to remind listeners, the IFC is the International Finance Corporation. It's the private sector lending arm of the World Bank. That's right. So yeah. lending into private activities in developing mm-hmm. countries. So setting that aside, you know, the, the goal from last year was about $104 billion. As of the beginning of this year, they had $72 billion in commitments and $42 billion dispersed. Um, now, you know, the other important question is what, what was the intended timeline for all of this? And um, so they, you know, they, they were setting out a program of lending that would take them through uh, July of of this year. So actually, by our projections, when it comes to the commitments, they're they're well on track, easily on track to meet their goal. Um, but disbursements, again, by our projections, we would expect they're only going to make it to about sixty four billion dollars in disbursements by the by by the summer. Um, and you know, I think our judgment is that that frankly just falls short of of what the countries have needed throughout this crisis period. So there's been a lot of discussion about the need for a green recovery that, you know, the, the funding that comes in for stimulus from uh, multilateral banks ought to be directed towards, you know, climate sensitive uh, investments. I mean, have we seen that actually happen um, over the last year? Um, well, I should say I, it's not something that in our research, we haven't looked at the sort of the sectoral distribution of, of the project. So I, I really can't say my hunch, my strong hunch would be that, yes, I think we could we could see um, some greening of the response of the last year, simply because this clearly has been a priority for the institution overall in recent years. I, you know, they in parallel with with um, this crisis activity, the bank, um, you know, as recently as 2018, had had made some pretty aggressive uh, commitments in the way of targets, overall financing targets for uh, climate finance activities. So, you know, they've been under pressure to scale this stuff up. So, I, you know, I would fully expect that that would be evident in in the projects that we're seeing. Um, and yes, I mean, it's, there's definitely been this, uh, mantra of building back better, building back greener. Um, I should say, I think there, there's some tensions here, um, and it does entail some real trade-offs that, that we should be, um, you know, we, we should certainly be mindful of. And if you talk to, to folks in developing countries, they, I think they would be quick to point out that it's not, not the case that in, in every instance, uh, a climate project represents the best thing, mm-hmm. uh, the best way to spend World Bank money during this crisis period. Um, and I think there is, I, you know, I think we ought to have a little bit of, um, we ought to be a little cautious about fully embracing the idea that, you know, crisis financing can exclusively be climate financing and, and there's nothing lost in that. Could you also briefly uh, just explain the International Monetary Fund's role in, you know, COVID-19 response and recovery? Well, 
you know, I think one thing that's notable, and it, it actually um, it, it relates to the climate agenda, is that, you know, I think what we're seeing with the IMF in this crisis, which is sort of consistent with a trend of the last decade, is a more expansive notion of, of what the fund is, is, um, is supposed to do. So in a strict and narrow sense, you know, the, the IMF uh, finances countries when they're having balance of payments uh, problems. So, you know, we would think of, again, if we look back a decade ago in the global financial crisis, um, countries were, were experiencing financial crises. Um, so it could be, um, you know, they lose access to hard currency. Um, and, you know, the, the role of a big IMF loan is is to support um, to support their reserves uh, to give them that kind of access, um, but you know I think we've seen sort of again more expansive ideas about um, the role that the IMF can play. So I think there are you know very current discussions around um, the so-called special drawing rights of the IMF, the SDRs, um, which you know was I think the most obscure of instruments in, in international policymaking and suddenly is on the lips of every CSO and NGO in Washington today. So, you know, it's this, it's, it's really this striking phenomenon where suddenly the IMF is viewed, yes, as a crisis funder, which it has always been, but, you know, more than that, um, you know, sort of almost a development institution like the World Bank. So, you know, for example, we're seeing with this, with the SDRs, proposals to channel those SDR resources toward climate projects, toward um, the pandemic itself, vaccine purchases. So um, I think that's all still very unsettled at the moment. You know, it, it appears that they will go forward with uh, a new distribution of SDRs, but so far, you know, I think that will be for pretty, pretty traditional purposes and uses. And then, you know, outside of that, in terms of the IMF's, you know, the scale of their financing in this crisis, it's frankly been fairly modest. Um, and I think that's, you know, in that case, it's less clear that somehow the fund is being laggard or not responsive enough uh, versus, you know, we aren't seeing sort of this cascading set of financial crises in these in these countries and in the way that they're they would all be beating down the door of the fund asking for big bailout packages so lastly you know we saw u.s treasury secretary janet yellen sort of recently kind of call for a new Bretton woods moment uh the idea being that these multilateral institutions, the multinational banks, the IMF and the World Bank, you know, that were created in the wake of World War II now have to be refit for this new purpose. We have this great calamity just as we did after World War II. And, you know, now we have this opportunity to reshape these institutions in ways to meet more current problems. I mean, does that strike you as a relevant comparison? And what would you expect uh, from this kind of transitional? You know, do you expect this to be a transitional period for the IMF and the World Bank? Yeah, so look, I think um, what we're seeing from Secretary Yellen is very exciting because it represents something big in my mind. As someone who's followed these institutions for many years, I think the the biggest risk of failure for them 
and meeting the challenges, the global challenges that we have today is, is one of incrementalism. And that's, you know, frankly, that's where we've been with these institutions, certainly over the last decade is sort of modest steps, perhaps in the right direction, not always. Um, and that, you know, that reflects to a large degree, the behavior of certainly the US government, other leading shareholders. So to have Secretary Yellen um, now just, you know, demonstrating in in a lot of different areas, certainly the financing areas, but even things like, you know, her initiative on a, a global corporate minimum tax, um, that's just showing a degree of ambition that we haven't seen for these institutions in a while. And it suggests that, um, you know, that there really is an appetite for much bolder action. Um, and, you know, we could a year from now be seeing just a much more ambitious agenda than, you know, uh, the the alternative path, which would be, okay, the crisis is winding down. Um, we can all settle down now and, and wind down uh, the, the crisis stance of these institutions. When the reality is, you know, there are just huge demands, um, you know, preparing for the next pandemic um, and meeting the climate challenges, all of these things, you know, point to, you know, much more significant um, roles for these international institutions than than really we've seen in, in terms of real commitments to date. So I think it's, I, I think there's there's a lot to watch in terms of the behavior of the U.S. government as we as we see her early statements on this stuff. Uh, well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. This is fascinating. My pleasure. And I'll be interested to see if other uh, countries kind of take up that corporate minimum tax uh, proposal, which is very conveniently pegged to what would fund uh, the Biden administration stimulus plan. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a domestic side to it and the international, but they are linked. And I think um, what's interesting is the IMF, at least the chief economist of the IMF, has been out there saying we fully support this. David Malthas was asked about it and he sort of hemmed and hawed and made it very clear. He didn't want to talk about it. So. Oh, there, there you go. Uh, well, well, thanks Scott. I learned a lot. Okay. Okay. See ya. see ya. Bye. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Scott Morris. And I'll post a link to his analysis in the show notes of this episode. Uh, and a special thank you to my puppy Murray for his contributions at the tail end of this episode. We'll see you next time. Bye.